Well, good morning. That's a great last song, isn't it? That God will give you the strength that you need to get through whatever you're going through. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, we'll be looking at verses 25 through 34. It's on a subject that you might have some experience with. Have you ever been worried before? Worry is that fear of the future. I'm fearful of what's coming. There's some impending danger that's coming. And my fear leads me to try to figure out a way that I can fix or change the future. And our nation is suffering with what I would think is an epidemic of worry, of people being worried. I read a report this week that more children are coming in for help with worry. And they're coming in looking for help, and they're instantly being given medication and then being sent home with no therapy, no talk, no conversation, just go home. And you might ask, well, why are they doing that? Why are they just giving the children medication and sending them home? And the answer is because they don't have enough counselors to help all the people who are coming in with worry and anxiety. So the doctors give them a med and send them home, and they hope that the med will give them some relief. Worry is so common that it's become accepted in our society. It's become accepted that if you're living, you're going to be worried, that you have to deal with worry. And even secular counseling, the psychologist will tell you, that, well, there's really no hope that you're ever going to get rid of your worry. The best you can do is control and manage your worry. So if you're worried, you're just kind of stuck with it. And for unbelievers, for people who do not know Christ, that is certainly true. If you don't know Christ, you have every reason to be worried you have very little hope. You have no hope of ever getting rid of your worry because psychology can't get rid of your worry for you. But that is not what the Bible says about believers. Believers should never worry. They should never live in fear of the future. Here's the reality. The Bible talks about worry, and it doesn't say that worry is a medical problem. The Bible says that worry is sin. And you say, well, that's not a very encouraging way to start the sermon off here. That should be very encouraging to you, Christian. If it's a medical problem, Jesus is not the answer. But if it's sin, Jesus Christ is the answer, and there is freedom from worry. And you as a believer are called to not worry. Don't be worried. And that's Jesus' whole point in our passage this morning. Do not worry. And he's going to give you six reasons you as a disciple of Christ should never be worried. You should never worry. Matthew 6, verse 25, this first reason you should not worry. You should not worry because worry is unfaithfulness. Worry is unfaithfulness. Look at Matthew 6, verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Notice he starts this off with, do not be worried. That's not a suggestion. It is a command. It's an imperative. Do not be worried. It's the same idea that's given in Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing. Both of them are commands. Which means when I am worried, it's not that I just have a mistake. It's not that I have a medical problem. It's meaning I am sinning. I am inviting a clear command of God. I am not the victim of an emotion called worry. 
I'm the perpetrator of a crime against God. You are acting against the clear commands of God. There is nothing in this life you as a believer should ever worry about. Verse 25 again. Do not be worried about your life. Life here can be translated as soul. It's not referring to your spiritual side, the spiritual part of you. It's just talking about your life in the physical body. How do we know that? Because the statements that follow all deal with providing for your physical needs. Verse 25 again, we do not be worried about what you will eat or what you will drink. Eating and drinking are basic necessities of living. For sustaining your physical life without food and drink, you will die. Verse 25 again, you are also not allowed to worry about your body as to what you will put on. Put on here, the verb is used to refer to putting on clothing. This isn't talking about fashion. It's not saying don't worry about what kind of clothing you're going to wear. This is talking about function. Clothing is designed to protect you from the elements. It's considered a basic necessity of life. It's vital to your existing in this world is for you to have basic clothing. And here are these two basic necessities, the need for food and clothing. And Jesus says, as important as those are, you are not to worry about them. That is a command. Do not worry about it. Well, why? Verse 25. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? You know, there's something about worry that you need to understand. Worry is an all-consuming activity. When you worry, you stop doing other stuff. You don't do the things you're supposed to be doing, and I can prove this to you real quick. The last time you were worried and you got in bed to go to sleep, did you go to sleep or did you lie there and worry about it? You stopped doing what you were supposed to be doing. You were in bed to go to sleep, and yet there you are lying in bed worrying. And if you're worried at work, you stop working. If you start worrying at prayer time, you stop praying. You stop loving others. You stop worshiping. You stop reading the Bible. It takes over your life. To worry requires you to ignore and to put off the things that you have been called to do. And so Jesus turns to you and asks, is not life more than food? Is there not more to your life than wondering about how you're going to get your next meal? Now, keep in mind, today, you know, if you're hungry, you go to H-E-B or Whataburger or we don't have a problem with food. But back then starvation was a real issue. And he says, isn't your life more than searching after your next meal? Aren't there other things that you're supposed to be doing in the body more than clothing? Are there not other things that the body needs other than clothing? Are there not other things your body should be doing than looking for something to wear? Should you spend all of your time on this earth worrying about those things? God has given you things to do. You were called, you were elected, you were saved, you were created in Christ for good works. Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 4, he says you were being equipped for the work of the ministry. So you can go out and serve and love others and bring other people to Christ. But how are you going to obey those commands if you're sitting at home, pacing your living room, worrying all day? The Bible calls you to meditate on God's word. Psalm 1 says, the man that has the blessing of God is the man who meditates on his word day and night. When you're worrying, what are you meditating on? You're meditating on your desires, your wants, your fears, your needs. You're meditating on you and what might happen to you. Jesus commands you to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is a command. 
when you're worried, are you thinking about the needs of others? Are you putting their needs before your own? Are you loving others? Are you loving Christ the way you have been loved? No, when you're worried, you're fixating on loving self and preserving self. Far from loving others, when you are worried, you are engaging in self-love. Because it's all about me when I'm worried. Everything is about me now. Jesus forbids all worry. You cannot be faithful to Christ and be worried at the same time. You cannot do both. Worry is unfaithfulness because you will put off what you're supposed to do so you can be worried. That brings us to our second reason you should not worry. Worry is unnecessary. Worry is unnecessary. Look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Jesus is now going to illustrate his point here that you shouldn't worry, and he's going to illustrate it by pointing you back to creation. And he's going to focus in on this issue of worrying about food. And so he points you to the birds. Notice in verse 26, the birds do not sow, reap, or gather. Sowing refers not only to the sowing or throwing seed, but also refers to the the tilling up of the ground and preparing the soil for the seeds to be planted. Reaping is talking about cutting the grain. Once it is fully grown, you cut it. And then gathering is talking about bringing it all into the barn. These are all activities that people would have done every year so they can live. And if they stopped doing it, they would have a problem with not having enough food. These are necessary means for humans to eat. And yet Jesus points to the birds and says, the birds do not sow, they do not reap, and they do not harvest. They do not gather. They eat without working. They don't have to work. And this is where someone will say, well, so is Jesus teaching me that I don't need to go to work on Monday? No. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, For even when we were with you, we used to command this to you. If anyone is not willing to work, neither let him eat. The Bible does not embrace laziness. It doesn't embrace welfare for couch potatoes. So how is it that the birds don't have to sow, reap, or gather, and yet they are still able to eat? How is that possible? Look at verse 26. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. The word feed here refers to caring for someone by providing nourishment or food. And the Greek word here actually implies that this is done over a long period of time. It's done over a long period of time. And it's enough food, not just so they can barely stay alive, but so that they have adequate nourishment. The birds are nourished by God, but they can't just sit in the nest and wait all day for God to bring it to them. They actually have to go out and get it. God feeds them. I want you to think about this for a minute. God knows each bird, and he knows the individual needs of every single bird in the world. Jesus in Matthew 10, 29 said of the sparrows, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. There's not a bird in the world that can die and Jesus not know about it. He cares about every single one of them. 
He knows about their life. And there's not a bird in the world that eats that God does not feed. When a bird goes out to catch the worm, it is the Father who created the worm, and he created that worm so he could place that worm in the right spot for that bird at that moment to go have a meal. And that worm is sufficient for providing the nourishment the bird needs. You might say the father served the worm to that particular bird. And he does it every day, for every meal, for every single bird. Millions and millions of times over. That is how God cares for birds. Look at the end of verse 26 again. Something I want you to notice. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Now, he's discussing the care of the birds. God feeds birds. You would think he would say, and their heavenly Father feeds them. But he doesn't. Jesus doesn't call God their Father because God is not their Father. God is their creator. They are not his children. They are his creatures. And he does not relate to them as father to children because they are not made in his likeness. They cannot have a relationship with God as children. They can only relate to him as creation. Look at the last question of verse 26. Are you not worth much more than they? God's care and provision for the birds is undeniable. If he stopped providing for them, they would all die. His care demonstrates that they have value, that they have worth. That God loves them. And I want to show you that they do have worth. Turn over Matthew 10, verse 29. We'll be right back to this idea. Matthew 10, verse 29. This is again Jesus speaking. The verse opens by saying this. Are not two sparrows sold for an Assyrian? An Assyrian was a Roman coin. It was considered to be a very little value. It's such a small amount economically that when your English Bible translates it, it may have translated as a penny. It doesn't equate economically to a penny. They use penny because it just it's a very low-value coin. These birds have such a low economic value that you can use this very worthless coin to buy two of them. And Jesus says, your father cares for each one of them, and he knows when one of these little worthless birds falls to the ground and dies, and he feeds every single one of them. You might say he has numbered the sparrows. He tracks each and every one of them. But what about you? Do you have value? Do you have worth to God? Matthew 10, verse 30. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. He doesn't just know if a human dies. That's basic information. He tracks the hairs of your head. He knows the exact number at all times. If his concern for the sparrows results in him knowing when each of them falls to the ground, his care and concern for you results in him knowing when you lose a single hair. That's how closely he watches over you. Your condition, you are infinitely worth more than the birds. How do I know that? Chapter 10, verse 31. So do not fear. Anxiety is a form of fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. You are far more valuable than a multitude of sparrows. How much is a Christian worth to the Father? I'll give you an idea. He didn't pay a penny for you. He gave his son. And yet when you worry, 
you are confessing that God does not care for you. That God cares for the birds because they're his creation, but they're not his children and he doesn't care for you. If you are a believer, you are a child of God. He is your father. He's not the father of the birds, but he is your father. And when the perfect father in heaven is feeding you, when he is providing for you, what do you need to worry about? We have parents in the room. If he is our father, then he's relating to us in a way that we can understand. If you have children, have you ever had your children come to you and say, Mommy, Daddy, I'm hungry. And you say, "Mm, I don't want to feed you today. Come back to me tomorrow. Do you let your children go hungry? Do you let them starve? Do you think your children should be at home wondering and worrying whether or not you are going to feed them today? And if you answer no to those questions, well, do you somehow think you're a better provider than God is? Are you more capable, more willing? Do you think that you are a more loving parent than he is? And if you answer no to those questions, then why are you worried again? What is it that you have to be worried over? If God is your perfect, loving, heavenly Father, who loves and provides perfectly for his children, then worry is completely unnecessary. We're back in Matthew 6, by the way. We've seen that worry is unfaithfulness. It's unnecessary. Now let's go to the third reason you should not worry. You shouldn't worry because worry is unproductive. Worry is unproductive. This is in verse 27. That is to say, worry accomplishes nothing. It is completely useless. It's a waste of your time, energy, and resources. Look at verse 27. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? I want to point out this phrase, a single cubit. A cubit was the shortest measurement of distance. And it literally refers from the distance from the tip of your elbow to the tip of your middle finger. That was one cubit. And you typically, it was such a small measure that you typically wouldn't say, well, this morning I walked 567 cubits. It was a much shorter distance than that. And here the distance, this unit measures, not measuring distance, but it's measuring a period of time, your lifespan. The distance of your life, the length of your life. And so when you put these together, you can say it this way, who can add a single moment to his lifespan? Because that is what the worrier is trying to do. When he worries about his basic necessities, he's trying to figure out a way that he can prolong his life. And Jesus turns and says, who can extend their life by a moment? And the answer here is obvious. No one. Men throughout the ages have looked for ways to try to extend their life. The French writer Voltaire, on his deathbed, told his doctor, I will give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months of life. You know, the doctor had to tell him, I'm sorry. I can't help you. The English philosopher Thomas Hobbes, if I had the whole world, I would give it to live one day. You can't extend your life. There's nothing you can do to add a single moment to your life. The CDC, modern science, face masks, social distancing, healthy living, all that will not add a single moment to your life. But you notice how Jesus didn't mention any of those things here? He mentions worry. In the quest to extend or preserve your life, there is nothing more useless, more unproductive to achieving that aim than worry. 
The warrior sits there and they fixate on obtaining food as the means to sustain their life. And their focus shifts from looking to God as their provider to looking to themselves. And they spend their time looking in the mirror, hoping that they somehow can find a way to add moments through their provision and through their work and through their effort. They think they can not only provide food, they think that they have ways to avoid illness, to avoid somehow death, to prolong their life. They believe that by worrying, constantly dwelling on, thinking about, pondering, and striving, they can even add minutes or even years to life. And Jesus crushes these unfounded hopes with one single question. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? Being worried about your life, being worried about any aspect of your life is completely pointless. It's a complete waste of time. It is completely unproductive. God is the one that provides what you need. God is the one who sustains your life, and he determines how long you will live. He has already determined. You have a set number of days on the earth, and you cannot add to it, and you cannot subtract from it. Job 14.5, since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Your limits are set. You cannot go past. You can't shorten it, and you can't lengthen it. You have a set number of days. Your decisions can affect the quality of your life, but they will not change the length of your life. And worrying about it won't do anything to change that. It is completely unproductive. It accomplishes nothing. That's the third reason you shouldn't worry. It's completely unproductive. Fourth reason you should not worry. Worry is unbelief. Worry is unbelief. Unbelief is another way of saying you lack faith. When you're worried, you are not trusting God in that moment. To have faith is merely to trust. You have resorted to trusting in someone or something other than God. Maybe you're trusting in a politician or a political party. Or maybe you're trusting in yourself. Or you're trusting in the people around you. But when you're worried, you're not trusting in God. Worry is unbelief. It is a failure to trust God in your circumstances, in your situation. Now, Jesus here in Matthew 6 just finished illustrating why you shouldn't worry about food and drink. And now in verses 28 through 30, he focuses on clothing. This is right back to verse 25 where he brought up food and clothing. Matthew 6, verse 28. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Once again, he points you to creation to teach you why you should not worry. And this is now worrying about clothes. And he points to lilies. This can refer to the white lily. I don't know if you've ever seen a white lily. It's a beautiful flower. But it's paired with another phrase, flowers of lilies of the field. Lilies of the field is not speaking about cultivated flowers like you would grow in your garden. It's talking about the flowers just occurring naturally. And he says, those flowers have a natural beauty to them. Their beauty is what he's referring to as clothing. And it's produced... That beauty is produced without any work on the part of the flower. 
the flower does nothing for that clothing. Notice it says they do not toil. To toil means to exert yourself physically, mentally, or spiritually. To work hard, to strive. The flowers are clothed in beauty. And they grow and they have all that they need without striving or working. Nor do they spin. Spinning here refers to making yarn by twisting fibers together. That's how you make clothes. As the flower grows, it doesn't need to go out and shop for new clothes every year. God provides its raiment. God provides the clothing. And that beauty comes out of the flower. And the flower is just beautiful because God gives the clothing to the flower. And you might say, well, yeah, but, you know, these are free handouts for the flower. This must not be a very good clothing. You know, he kind of raggedy used, worn. No, that's not how Jesus describes it. Verse 29. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. Jesus compares the clothing of the flowers and says it exceeds the glory of Solomon. Notice Solomon in all of his glory. Notice he did not mention Solomon in all of his clothing. The phrase, all of his glory, refers to his splendor and his glory as king. Anybody watch the coronation of King Charles in England? I didn't either. But I saw some pictures. I was hoping at least one person would. Kings don't sit on their thrones in sackcloth and ashes. They have the finest clothing, the best robes. And in that day when most people just made their clothes at home and they were kind of raggedy, to see a king in all of his glory and splendor would have been an amazing thing. He was the best-dressed guy in town. Now, we don't have a description of Solomon's clothes, and nobody took his picture, so we can't see that either. Thank you for getting that. But we do have some descriptions of him in 1 Kings, 1 Kings 3 and 1 Kings 10, if you want to go there. We do have some descriptions of his magisterial glory, the glory of the king. In 1 Kings 3, verse 13, God says this, I have also given you, that would be Solomon, what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you in all of your days. I'm going to make you better and more glorious than every king on earth. There will be no one like you on the earth. He would have the finest clothes from all over the world. How do I know that? 1 Kings 10. 1 Kings 10, verse 23. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And all the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. And they brought every man his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, there's clothing, weapons, spices, horses and mules, and set amount year by year. Solomon received the finest clothes, the finest jewelry from all over the world. He was better dressed than any king. He had more splendor and more glory than any king alive. And people would have come looking for him to see that magisterial glory. It would have been an awesome thing to behold. And Jesus points to this and says, the flowers are better dressed than Solomon." Jesus says that when Solomon was at the pinnacle of his earthly and magisterial glory, the flowers had better clothes. We can go back over to Matthew 6. 
So how can the flowers of the field have such an amazing glory without any work? When they don't strive and they don't toil, how is it that they can have this amazing glory? Well, the answer is God clothes them in glory. He clothes them in a glory that surpasses the glory of kings. Matthew 6, verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Now, notice the opening of that says, but if God. Some people might say, well, the if there means it's uncertain. No, you can actually translate this differently. You could translate it, since God so clothes the grass of the field. He's assuming it's true. The grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace. Grass and plant life is extremely temporal. It's here today, literally here today, gone tomorrow. You'll plant a flower this spring, and by the summer, it'll be gone. It's extremely temporal. And it's so temporal that the wisdom literature uses plant life to show the temporalness of life. Uh, Psalm 102, verse 11, My days are like an outstretched shadow, and as for me, I dry up like grass. Grass is alive today, and tomorrow it's thrown into the furnace. Why would he tell us that it's thrown into a furnace? If you had a mink jacket, I don't know if any of you would wear a mink jacket, or silk tablecloth, would you throw it into the fireplace? You don't throw valuable things into the furnace. You don't throw precious, costly things into the furnace. You throw trash into the furnace. Things you want to get rid of into the furnace. Grass is not worth much. And its end reveals its true worth. It is temporal and ultimately it will be turned into ash. And yet grass, temporal, fleeting, momentary grass, is cared for and clothed by God. He clothes it with splendor and glory. And if he's willing to care for some grass like that, verse 30, Will he not much more clothe you? The question again assumes, yes, he will. Of course God will clothe you. Of course he will provide for you. You are worth infinitely more than the grass. And if that is true, if you are worth more than the grass and you believe what Jesus says, why are you worried? What do you have to worry about? I'll tell you why you're worried. Unbelief. That's not my opinion. That is what Jesus said in the verse 30. You of little faith. Little phrase, faith. This phrase is used several times by Jesus. And it is never used to refer to unbelievers. It is always used to describe believers. So I don't want anyone leaving here doubting their salvation this morning on that. This is used in Matthew 8, verse 26. And here in Matthew 8, 26, it's connected to being cowardly. Matthew 8, verse 26, and he said to them, Why are you so cowardly, you men of little faith? He uses it again in Matthew 14 when Peter is walking on water. And Peter starts to notice the wind and the waves. He starts to notice his circumstances. Matthew 14, verse 31, And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And now he uses the same term not to describe Peter or the apostles, but to describe those who worry. 
the worrier has little faith. At the end of the day, worry is not a trivial part of the human experience. Worry is practical atheism. The atheist denies the existence of God in total. The worrier denies the existence of God in their situation. The atheist claims that all things occur randomly according to some arbitrary laws of nature. The warrior claims that God will not or cannot help them. What's the practical difference? There is no difference. A worried believer refuses to believe the promises and character of God. Worry tells God that he cannot be trusted, that he is not honest, that he is either unable or unwilling to provide and to care for you. And when you refuse to trust God, the only thing left is for you to trust yourself, the people around you, or the things in your circumstances. To not trust God is to be guilty of the sin of unbelief. When you are worried, I know what the world is telling you right now. I know that the world says when you're worried, what you really need to do is go get some treatment. And you need to go get some medical help. No, you don't. What you need is to repent. You have sin, and Christ is the answer. Worry is a lack of faith. It is a form of unbelief. And if you think I'm overstating this, let's look at the next reason you shouldn't worry. The fifth reason you shouldn't worry. Worry is for unbelievers. That is to say, worry is characteristic of an unbeliever. It is perfectly consistent that a person who is unwilling to trust Christ for salvation would not trust him for their temporal needs. That's perfectly consistent. Matthew 6, let's look at Matthew 6, verse 31. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? Notice he says, do not worry then, saying. The saying is what you do when you're worried. The things that follow here, what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear for clothing, those are the things the worried person says. These are the verbal expressions of worry. They ask these questions because they have no confidence that God is going to provide for them. So they spend their every waking moment thinking about, worrying about how they will provide for themselves. And they refuse to trust God. Who lives like this? Who does that? Verse 32. For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. Gentiles here is not a reference to race. It's a reference to their religion. They are unbelievers. They do not trust in Christ. And worrying is the pattern of their life. How do you know that they're worried? Because they are eagerly seeking. Remember, worry is the fear of the future and you trying to change it. And so they're eagerly seeking a way of obtaining what they think they need to survive. The verb indicates that this is this ongoing, continual activity of the individual constantly striving after, how can I get what I think I need? And they never look to Christ. They never look to God. Always focus on obtaining their needs, and they never rest. Their entire life is focused on preserving their existence. Is this how a believer should live? Should this kind of self-sufficiency mark the life of those who have been adopted by the Father? Those who have run to Christ? Of course not. Verse 32. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. 
you know, the Gentiles, it, it makes perfect sense that an unbeliever is worried. Not only because, you know, judgment's coming, but just think about practically. There's no true atheist in the world. Everybody worships a God. But the Gentiles have gods that are either a figment of their imagination or wood or stone or metal. And those gods are so weak and so inept that they cannot answer prayer. They cannot defend people that worship them. And like Dagon, they can't even keep themselves up on a shelf vertical. And so if that's the God you're trusting in, it makes perfect sense that you're worried. Your God can't do anything for you. But you, you have a Heavenly Father who knows your needs, who cares for you, who loves you, who saved you. And not only does He know what you need, He has promised to provide all that you need. And if you believe that, why are you worried? Why is it that you can trust Christ to save you eternally, but you can't seem to trust Him to feed you temporally? Don't live like an unbeliever. Spending your every waking moment worrying. You are called to focus on other things. What are you called to focus on? Verse 33. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. When he says seek first, he's referring to set as the main priority of your life. The most important thing for you to do is not to seek after food and clothing and other necessities. The most important thing for you to seek after is His kingdom and His righteousness. To seek it is to orient your life in that direction. His kingdom would ultimately refer to Christ returning and reigning on earth, but in the present tense, it would refer to living under the authority and the rule of the king. And as a citizen of the kingdom, you seek to submit yourself to the king in all things. To seek after his righteousness. There's a lot of discussion on that phrase, his righteousness. I think the best way to understand that is to seek the righteousness that God approves. There's a righteousness in the world that God hates. But you are to seek after the righteousness that he approves of. The pattern and the conduct of living that pleases him. You are to be focused on living righteously. That should be the focus of your life. Jesus said another way in Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Focus your life on living in a way that is pleasing to Christ. Stop living like an unbeliever. Focus on getting things in this world. Worrying about what you will eat, what you will drink, what will happen tomorrow, what's going to happen next week. And this is the point where someone says, yes, but what about eating and drinking? I mean, I still need those things. I can't just pretend like I don't need to eat and drink. Verse 32, And all these things will be added to you. He's not talking about a brand new car. He's not talking about a really big house or a Learjet. He's talking about your needs. He's going to supply all that you need. You are to spend your life striving to be pleasing to him, and he will ensure that you have all that you need. You will have all the food, the drink, and the clothing that you need. Now, if you believe that, that is going to give you a lot of comfort. Because there are going to be days where your flesh tells you, I don't have all that I need. And you have a promise from Christ that he does give you all that you need, which means what you have right now is what you need. And if you take something away, guess what? You didn't need it. He will give you what you need. That is the promise of Christ. Are you trusting him for that? Are you trusting him in your circumstances? Are you living by faith? Or are you spending your life worrying 
like the Gentiles, like an unbeliever. We've seen five reasons not to worry. Worries on faithfulness, it's unnecessary, it's unproductive, it's unbelief, it's for unbelievers. And now the sixth reason you should not worry. Worry is unwise. You know, wisdom is applying the knowledge that you have. Wisdom is living according to what you know. And as a believer, worry demonstrates that you are not living according to what you know. Let me show you. Verse 34. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Notice he doesn't say, do not try to prepare for tomorrow. There are reasonable steps and logical steps for you to take for tomorrow. There is a right concern, a concern that leads you to take reasonable, responsible steps to provide for your needs, like get up and go to work tomorrow. And if you are striving to be pleasing to Christ, you will be doing those things. You know why? Because that's the only way you can be faithful. That's the only way you can be pleasing to Him, is if you are working. You won't be indulging the sin of laziness. You'll be a good steward of your time. And it will be through that diligent effort that God will provide all that you need. He doesn't say, don't prepare for tomorrow. He said, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't be overly concerned. This is an irrational fear of what might happen. Why is worrying about tomorrow wrong? Simple answer. You don't have control over tomorrow. You can start, hardly say that you have control over today. And this is really helpful in distinguishing between godly concern and sinful worry. Godly concern is focused on things that I can actually control and affect. I can control and affect whether I get up and go to work. I can control and affect whether or not I'm going to rack up a whole bunch of debt on my credit cards. Those are things I can actually control. And that is good and godly concern to be responsible in my behavior. But worry focuses on what might happen in the future. It worries on things that I cannot control. Well, the stock market might fall tomorrow. Yes, it might. And I can't do anything about it, so why worry about it? Well, an asteroid might hit the earth. True. But what are you going to do about it? You can't control it. Remember the old story, Chicken Little, the sky is falling? What are you going to do about it? God controls those things. And for you to sit there and think about and try to figure out a way for you to control it, for you to say you're going to be God today and he's going to take a break. It is unwise to worry about things that you cannot control. That's not a proper use of the knowledge that you have. You know you can't control it. Why are you trying? If you're going to be worried about problems and challenges that might be coming, you're going to have to be worried for the rest of your life. There's never going to be an end to problems and challenges in this world. And if you have to try to figure out all the problems and challenges that are, might be coming in the future, you will forever be worried. Why? Verse 34. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Even as a believer, you're going to encounter problems and trials and difficulties. Every day is going to present new challenges, new obstacles that you need to overcome. You'll have new needs tomorrow that you don't know about today. Worry is unwise because while God promised to provide all of that, all that you need to meet those challenges. It's unwise because God does not promise to meet all of those needs today. He did not promise to meet tomorrow's needs today. 
And yes, I have a verse for that. Matthew 6, verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Give me the bread I need for today. Give me what I need to face what I'm facing right now. Not what I need two weeks from now. Remember the children of Israel in the wilderness? God was going to give them food and he rained manna from the sky and he gave them enough food for six months? No. He gave them enough food for one day and said, if you want more, come back tomorrow and I'll give you your daily bread for that day. And you just have to trust me, it'll be there when you wake up. Christian, are you worried about tomorrow? Look, there are a million things that can go wrong. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. And there are a billion questions you can ask and ponder about tomorrow. And you don't need the answer to all of those questions. I know you want the answer to all those questions, but you don't need it. You don't need to know what will happen or how it will work out. You just need to know the God who controls tomorrow. The God who is omnipresent. The God who is here now and he is in the future. And he is working all things out for your good. You need to know the sovereign God who ordains and controls and appoints all things. You need to know the all-powerful God who is able to accomplish all that he desires and that no one can stay his hand. You need to know the loving, merciful, compassionate, covenant-keeping God who cannot lie. The one who said that he works all things out for your good. The one who said that he will supply all of your needs and that he cares for you above all creation. That's what you need to know. And fixing your mind on that, your knowledge of who God is, is a wise use of your time. Worry is completely unwise because it's a denial of everything you know about God. It's a denial of everything God says about himself. Christian, the world has a million reasons for you to worry, but you know God. You have a Father in heaven. You have nothing to worry about. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, in one sense, this passage is difficult because we're all so used to having worry in our hearts. We're all so accustomed to being worried about things and looking to ourselves. And so it can be a, a strong rebuke to hear that worry is sin, to hear that worry is unfaithfulness, that it's unbelief, that it's characteristic of unbelievers. But at the same time, it's a glorious truth. It's a glorious truth because if sin is the problem, then Christ is the cure. It means that we can be free of worry, that we can have peace with you, and we can know the peace of God. Because our hope and our trust is not in ourselves, it's not in our circumstances, it's not in our bank account. Our hope and our trust is in you. And we do ask that you would help each of us as we go through our weeks to focus on today, to focus our minds on you and the promises that you have made and to trust you through all the challenges and use those challenges to draw us closer to yourself. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.